If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The wife of Bath is a standout figure in Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. The only ordinary woman in the procession of pilgrims heading to Thomas Beckett's shrine... Alison is a sexually active, outspoken and funny working woman whose voice leaps from the page. Speaking with Emily Briffitt, Marion Turner explores the wife of Bath's colourful tale and what it can tell us about women's lives in the 14th century. Please be aware that this conversation includes discussion of rape and domestic abuse. Hi, Marion. It's an absolute pleasure to be chatting to you today. Thank you for having me. We're going to be talking all about the wife of Bath. Now, the wife of Bath is certainly one of the more recognisable figures from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. So to give us some context, would you mind briefly introducing us to the Canterbury Tales and setting the scene? Of course. So Chaucer wrote the Canterbury Tales in the later 14th century. Chaucer was born in the early 1340s, so just before the Black Death, the terrible plague hit, and he died in 1400. And he spent the last maybe about 13 years of his life working on the Canterbury Tales. So the Canterbury Tales features a group of people, quite a motley crew, who get together in a pub in South London, in Southwark. And they're all going on pilgrimage to Canterbury and they decide that they're going to tell stories on the way. So the Canterbury Tales is then a tale collection, a collection of a whole range of different kinds of of tales, different stories. Now, these pilgrims are socially varied and that's really important because in Chaucer's models, in other tale collections, all the people telling stories were all of high social class. Now, Chaucer is really committed to the idea that we shouldn't just hear 
from voices of authority, that we need to hear from a cook and a miller and a sailor, as well as from the knight. But they're not that varied in terms of gender. So we've got over 20 men and we've only got three women. Now, two of the women are nuns. And then we also have the wife of birth. So you can already hear from that, I hope, that she stands out in that group because she is the only woman who's not a nun, the only secular woman. Before we directly go into the wife of birth, could you tell us a little bit about how the Canterbury Tales are written? Because I think that you've got a prologue and each of them tell a story. Yes. At the beginning of the Canterbury Tales, there's something called the general prologue, which is a kind of introduction to the whole text. So that's when we hear about all the pilgrims gathering together There's a description of each pilgrim, so we hear a bit about all of them, and they decide to go on on this tale-telling contest to make the way shorter. And then, mostly, the pilgrims have a short prologue, and then they tell their tale. Three of the pilgrims have longer prologues, so two of those longer prologues are by the canon's yeoman and the pardoner, but they're kind of a, a couple of hundred lines each, and again, this is where the wife of Bath stands out, because her prologue is over 800 lines long. She tells us a lot about herself, much more than any of the other pilgrims do. Do we know why this is at all? Well, so Chaucer was completely fascinated by the wife of Bath. She was undoubtedly his favourite character, just as she's been almost everyone else's. And the reason I say that is that the wife of Bath pops up in other Canterbury tales. She's also the only pilgrim to pop up in one of Chaucer's other poems. So in another short poem that he wrote, he puts her into it. So he was really fascinated by her. And he then decided in her prologue to tell us more about her as a person. So the way I think about this is, I mean, Chaucer was really innovative in the way that he developed the very idea of literary character. So moving more away from types and more towards the idea of of more rounded individuals. And he does that through the wife of Bath. So not only is this the first time in English literature that we've seen this kind of woman, so a a middle-aged, sexually active, much-married working woman. We've never seen a woman like that in English literature before. And he chooses this character to develop a much more detailed sense of what we can know about a character. Tells us so much about her thoughts, her memories, her hopes for the future, her interiority, her feelings. So it's it's a really radical literary experiment in many different ways. How had women often been presented in literature beforehand? Yeah, it's such an important issue. So in literature before Chaucer, we have women who are, you know, queens, princesses, um, beautiful virgins who are going to be married off, damsels in distress who get rescued. Um, And there are also, you know, nuns and saints, those kinds of virtuous, so-called virtuous women. And then on the other hand, there are whores, prostitutes, you know, scary witches, old crones, so boards as in as in procuresses who are procuring young prostitutes, young women for men. So, you know, we have a variety of types, but for most women, these are not women with whom one can identify in in any way. So, you know, one of the key points of my book, The Wife of Bath, a biography, is that the wife of Bath is the first ordinary woman in English literature. And of course, I qualify that by saying she's also extraordinary in all kinds of ways, excessive, extraordinary, amazing. But when I say she's ordinary, it's because she is a woman who is doing things that many women can 
can relate to. She has sex, she talks about sex, she gossips, she drinks, she she works, she earns money, she inherits money, she has friends. She gets married lots of times in far more than, you know, most of us will, but but she does do things that are much more recognisable than your average queen or witch, who's the, the, the figures in literature that readers were used to in the 14th century. So I guess on that note, we should actually meet the wife of Butter. Could you introduce us to her and her story? Yeah, so... When we're introduced to the wife of Bath, we're told that she has been married five times, that she is a cloth worker, she works in the cloth industry, that she travels a lot, that she's been many times to Jerusalem, all over Europe, to the Holy Land. So she's introduced to someone who wanders and who knows a lot about the art of love. So those are some of the things that we're told in her general prologue portrait. Then when we get to her prologue, as I already mentioned, she has this very long prologue. So in effect, we get two stories from her. We get the story of her own life in her prologue, and then we get the story that she chooses to tell in her tale. So in her prologue, she tells us about her husbands, and there's lots of funny things, there's lots of serious things, there's lots of disturbing things. So in terms of, I suppose, the the disturbing things, if we if we start with that, she does tell us that she'd been the victim of domestic abuse. So we're often told throughout that she's still got, she's still, she's deaf from this abuse, that she still feels the fact that she's been beaten. And it's later on in the prologue that we hear the details of what has happened to her, that she was beaten by her fifth husband and that she was beaten for a book. She was beaten because he was reading, or one reason is that he was reading all these terrible things about women in his book of wicked wives. And that was the the spur for the, the domestic abuse that he inflicted on her. But she also tells us a lot of other things about her life, about her memories of pleasure, about the fact that she inherited lots of money as well as earning money. She's inherited money. She's been economically savvy. So she's managed to gain economic independence and that has helped her to make sexual choices, even though she hasn't always made good ones. But we do hear this is a story of a woman who has lived in a household with lots of other women who has often managed to get her own way, who's been very you know, bold in many of her choices who's had all kinds of interesting experiences. And for many people, her voice is extremely appealing because she's very, very funny. You know, she tells us all kinds of outrageous things she's done. She lets us into her secrets of the kind of terrible behaviour that she's often engaged in. A lot of these things are from anti-feminist, misogynist stereotypes, but she kind of turns those stereotypes on their heads a lot and makes us, makes most readers, not all, but makes most readers, you know, sympathise with her and think, you know, kind of be be on her side in the battle that she's waging against misogynist church fathers who wrote terrible tracts about women and so on. And she also makes points that are really important in terms of thinking about women's place in society. And crucially, she says, she talks about the Book of Wicked Wives and she says, well, people say all these terrible things about women. So many books say awful things about women. But that's because they've all been written by men. Women have not had the chance to tell their own story. And if they had, they would have written about the wickedness of men. And she uses a fable. She refers to this fable um, when she says, who painted the lion? Tell me who. And she's referring there to a fable about a man and a lion looking at a picture of a man triumphing over a lion. And the lion says, yeah, but who painted that? You know, the victors write 
history, don't they? So a man has said, look how great men are. They can beat lions. But if the lion had managed to, you know, pick up a paintbrush in his paws, he would have painted something quite, quite different. She uses that as a point about gender and says women have not had the chance to tell their own stories. And, you know, that's something that has been resonant for hundreds and hundreds of years that Virginia Woolf was writing about in very similar terms in the 20th century. So the wife of Bath is raising issues that really mattered then and matter now. And I haven't even told you yet about the tale. So she tells all these things. And incidentally, she gets interrupted a lot. She's interrupted more than any other pilgrim. The male pilgrims keep interrupting her. So again, kind of plus a change in many ways. But then she gets to her actual tale. And it's set in Arthurian times. And it begins with a knight. And for most listeners or readers at the time, just like today, if you start with the setting of King Arthur and the olden days and a knight riding around, what you're probably expecting is that this is going to be a great character. He's going to go and he's going to start to kill monsters and he's probably going to rescue women or maybe he'll go and find the Holy Grail, you know, something like that. That's not what happens. You know, very early on, what we find out is that this man is a rapist. He rapes a woman. So it turns extremely dark, you know, right at the at the start. And the story is then about what happens to that rapist, that while the king wants to execute him, the queen and her ladies instead say, no, let's make him, him think about what he's done. Let's try and get him to think about the ethics of, of his behaviour. And he's sent off to find out what women want to think about female desire when it's been clear he doesn't care about female desire. And we then go into a kind of fairy story. We end up with a, a loathly lady, an ugly old woman whom he has to marry. She transforms in the end, but on the way, she teaches him a great deal about ethics. So the older, poor, unattractive woman is the ethical heart of the story. So one message is that, you know, we need to listen to these people who no one listens to, you know, older women in society. There's many other things that go on in this in this story as well. Um, and it's it's disturbing in many ways, but a very interesting story for this woman to tell. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about this story? Go into a little bit more depth, perhaps? Yeah, I'd love to. So the knight goes off to find out what women want, and he can't find the answer. You know, he people say all different things. And then he sees this mysterious sight in the woodland, these dancing girls and ladies who all vanish. And then there's only the old lady left. And she says, well, I will tell you the answer, but you must promise to do what I want. You know, you must promise to, that you will agree to that. He says, fine. And when they go to court, she gives him the answer. And he says, the answer is what women want is sovereignty. They want power. And all the women in the court say, yes, that's right. And then the loathly lady says, okay, now you've got to fulfill your promise. And what I want is that you should marry me. And he's absolutely horrified. And I think one of the most important moments is when he says, take all my good and let my body go. So he is being made to realise what it's like not to have control over your body, to end up having sex with someone that you didn't want to have sex with. So he is being made to think about what he did to the girl at the beginning of the story, the, the unnamed victim. He does marry her and he's horrified by the whole thing. And she then teaches him why he's so wrong to be so focused on appearance, you know, and talks about how, you know, you should value someone for what's within, talks about the Christian ethics of that at great length. And then she says to him, 
But look, you can choose. And it's actually a very misogynist choice that she gives him. You know, this is a complex tale, um, just as the wife of Bath is complex. And she says, you can have me young, but I may well be unfaithful. You won't know. There'll be loads of men who are coming to the house because I'm so young and beautiful. Maybe I'll be unfaithful to you. Or you can have me old and unattractive and, you know, I won't have any opportunities to be unfaithful. I'll be a good, faithful wife to you, which is better. So, you know, there's all kinds of problems in that choice. And he says, I just can't decide. I don't know what to do. And so he gives her the power. And she says, OK, well, if you've given me the power, you can have it all. I'll be young, beautiful and faithful to you. And then we're told, and this is one of the most disturbing parts, that she's obedient to him, that she's then obedient to him. And for many readers, you're just kind of tearing your hair and going, what, 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 what? That's not where I thought this was going. But the wife of Bath then says, okay, so she's then obedient to him. And, you know, basically they live happily ever after. And then in the same sentence, she goes on to say, and I want God to send us husbands that will always do what we women want. And if they don't, I want them all to die of the plague. So we get these two really opposing and both equally unpleasant views of gender relations at the end of this story. And I think partly, partly we're given, okay, this is how romance stories have to end. They always end like this, with marriage and young, beautiful, obedient women and the promise of children in future. And that's what this genre demands. That's what literature you know, demands of the story. Or that's what readers expect at that time. I think that's part of it. I think there's also the fact that we are given these two different ways of thinking about gender. And it's very Chaucerian to refuse to kind of come down on one position to say, well, look, you can think in this unpleasant way or you can think in this unpleasant way or neither. Make your own mind up. Make your own moral. Think about think about the story however you like. You know, it's not an easy story. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. I think it's one of those things that's maybe a little unsettling for perhaps readers today, especially when you hear the wife of Bath talk about the lion and that side of it. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of different things going on in the story so that we don't judge it only on one on one moment because lots of different things are said. So I think the idea of the old woman being the ethical centre is a really important part of the story. The idea of ethical redemptive punishment that is designed by women, which suggests that women are better rulers than men who simply want to execute the the criminal. I mean, that's an incredibly um, prescient idea, you know, redemptive punishment, punishment that actually um, fits the crime, those kinds of things. And a really interesting aspect of this story is that there were other versions of it in the Middle Ages, but in the other versions... The crime is not rape. So the story doesn't really make much sense in terms of these men being sent off to find out what women want doesn't fit with their crime. And they're not really to blame for their crime in the other versions. So in one, the crime has in fact been committed by the king and the knight heroically takes on the guilt in order to save the king. In another one, the the knight has killed someone but has done so entirely within the kind of normal you know, rules of chivalric life. So the knights are not seen as culpable. It's a huge change to make the romance hero into a villain. And that's, I think, a very dramatically interesting aspect of the story. By writing The Wife of Bath, it it almost seems as though Chaucer is writing a world where female voices can be influential. Was this a novel idea at the time? So I think there's a difference between what's happening in literature and what's actually happening historically. So in literature, this is a really new idea to have this ordinary woman, not a queen, not a witch, having a powerful voice in literature. But I think that we can only see this making sense in the in the historical context, because in the world that Chaucer lived in, he was indeed surrounded by powerful women. So in London, he knew many mercantile women who were powerful, who were respected. So I'm thinking about, in particular, widows. And of course, the wife of Bath is a serial widow. You know, widows in London would often go on running their their husband's businesses, for example. Other women actually ran businesses as sole traders. We have examples of heiresses who were the daughters of important merchants who then married many times, were very desirable prospects on the marriage market, dispensed patronage, were were really influential in, in the contemporary city. And they were able to do this because they benefited from good inheritance rights. Um, I'll talk more about that in a second, I think, but but also just to be a bit more expansive, in the courtly circle that he that he also was very familiar with, the queens and great ladies were also very respected figures. You know, Queen Anne um, and before that, Queen Philippa were both figures that, that Chaucer knew. They were cultural patrons. They were important in court. They had circles of ladies around them. Chaucer's own wife was a lady-in-waiting for a great lady, John of Gaunt's wife. And Chaucer himself, his first job was as a page boy for an important woman, the Countess of Ulster. So he was used to influential women. And as I say, 
When we look at other parts of Europe, this was not the same. So in England, women had better inheritance rights than they did, for example, in, in Italy at the time. You know, widows had the right to keep a large proportion of their husband's property. In London, they did even better. They, they, they had um, better rights. So, you know, in contrast, in Italy, women were were punished if they left their husband's family. They could only keep their dowry. So we are in a very specific situation in late 14th century England. And this is is a time that has been called a golden age for women. It was similar in the low countries in Holland, but it wasn't the same everywhere in the world. And I think that, you know, people often think about the wife of Bath as a timeless character. And it's true that she, she speaks to people across time. But I think it's also crucial to think of her in her historical moment, because there are many societies both then and sadly now, in which the idea of a woman who could choose sexual partners, who could work, who could inherit money, who could go out of the house and see her friends is not a possible thing to think about. So how representative can we really say that the wife of Bath was for ordinary medieval women? Well, I think it is important to remember that she's a literary figure. So lots of aspects of her come directly from literary texts. She's also excessive, you know, so she does everything in an over-the-top way. You know, she marries five times. She goes to Jerusalem three times. This is all a little bit over the top, but it's not ludicrous. You know, there's lots of examples of very respectable medieval women who have four husbands, for example, and I I talk about many of them in in my book. You know, I give lots of these microbiographies of of much married women. You know, and women such as Marjorie Kemp did indeed travel to the Holy Land and all over Europe. You know, without their husband with them. So, so she's not ludicrous, although she is. You know, a, a bit over the top. I think that when we think about ordinary medieval women, there is of course a real difference between classes. So. For for peasant women, they are living a very different kind of life compared to more mercantile city women. Aristocratic women, although they were often very, very powerful, often would end up you know, running their husband's estates, particularly if they were widows. But aristocratic women tended in a way to have it worse than mercantile women in that they were usually married off earlier at a younger age and had less choice over their husbands. So in fact, being a kind of city woman was in many ways the best deal, I think. There's so many themes that I want to talk to you about there. First, let's start with a bit of a contextual question. You spoke about this period being seen as a sort of a golden age for women, a time of relative prosperity. Can you just give us a bit of an overview? What changes were happening at this time? Yeah, so long term, England had been moving towards a situation where women were protected within the law, as I say, more than they were in other countries in terms of inheritance rights. There was also a tradition in England of women working and of things like for, except for the aristocracy, women tended to marry a bit later. There were traditions about things like women not staying within the family home after marriage, but something called neolocality, which is when a couple forms a new household on marriage. Now, that makes a huge difference because it means that girls leave their father's control. They're not under parental control. And also in order for that to happen, usually both partners have to work and earn money 
to have enough money. So they then that again delays marriage, which is better for women because they are older, more mature. They then have fewer children when they marry. They are already out in the working world. So they then have more choice over their marital partner. They can't be you know, forced into it by, by their fathers in the same way as, as happens more in other countries. So those are long-term trends, you know, partly, in fact, driven by or encouraged by the church increasingly focusing on consent rather than consummation as what makes a marriage. In other parts of Europe, that was not taken so seriously and consummation remained the, the most important aspect of a marriage. But these things which were therefore already part of English society then become heightened after the plague. So after the Black Death in the middle of the century, middle of the 14th century, we then have a situation where things improve for all workers. So if you survived, um, and that was of course a big if, you were then part of a much smaller workforce. And so of course wages went up. So that was the same for all working people. But we do see that that was particularly good for women. So more women got jobs, more women moved to towns. Then because there was a big economic boom, um, women, working women were benefiting from that. They were earning more, they were doing better. So we've got kind of long-term conditions that then get heightened and things improve more for women, particularly in the late 14th and early 15th century. The wife of Bath has extensive experience in the very lucrative cloth trade. Could you tell us what opportunities were actually available in terms of work for women? Yeah, that is a great question because I think a lot of people assume that the majority of women in the Middle Ages were living essentially domestic and very limited lives. Of course, of course, women's lives were limited in all kinds of ways. And I don't want to gloss over that. You know, we do need to remember that, of course, they they don't have the vote for, for example, the fact that you know, medical care and contraception is so limited at, at that time. There's lots of things which made women's lives hard. But at the same time, they did have many more opportunities than people often assume. So many, many women worked and they worked to all levels of society. So most commonly they worked in, so either things like the cloth trade as the wife of Bath does. So making cloth, silk weaving was a great example of women in the 1360s forming a kind of union and petitioning together to protest against a man who is price fixing in London. So lots of really interesting examples of women in kind of cloth and fabric trade providing food, um, brewing, you know, working in inns, that, that kind of work. There's also a lot of women in domestic service. And I find this very interesting because when I first started thinking about domestic service, I mean, today people don't usually aspire to work as, as maids or in domestic service. But when you think about the options in other societies in Chaucer's time, in other societies, the domestic work of the household is often being done by unpaid women. So sometimes by slaves. Some countries imported a lot of slaves after the Black Death, sometimes by the women of the household. So daughters, daughters-in-law, sisters, they're doing the work of the household unpaid. In fact, when women, when there's a long tradition of domestic service, women are leaving their father's house and they are getting out of their parents' control and they're earning salaries. They're then able to make more freer sexual choices because they have more economic independence. But as well as those major areas, we also find examples of women doing all kinds of things, you know, blacksmiths, parchment makers, scribes, ship owners. There are all these women who were doing, you know, really 
a very wide variety of jobs. And then at the very top end of society, we see women such as Alice Chaucer, who is the poet Chaucer's amazing granddaughter, who in the 15th century, you know, marries three times, becomes a duchess, ends up running an enormous land and property empire and really, you know, standing off against all kinds of important men and beating them at at their own game. So that's not a job in the way that being a maid is a job, but she was working and making money all the time. Another theme that I really want to talk about is Alison, the wife of Bath, is presented as very outspoken about sexual pleasure, but she also comes across very respectable, which I think is something we might not expect today of medieval society. Would this have seemed strange to Chaucer's audience? That's a really important point because the main source for Alison is Lavielle from the Romance of the Rose. And that woman is an old prostitute who is procuring girls for, for men. So she's now a kind of bored procuress figure. The wife of Bath is crucially not like that. She is not a prostitute. She doesn't do anything that is outside social norms. And in marrying five times, that is not that would not have seemed bizarre to Chaucer's audience. Within the prologue, The Wife of Bath talks a lot about the way that church fathers, that the church authorities, many of them have railed against multiple marriage. And to us, that seems a very strange attitude to most of us. But that would also have seemed strange to Chaucer's audience. So when the Wife of Bath is talking about those attitudes, she's not talking about normal contemporary attitudes. She's talking about these specific attitudes from the church fathers, from certain clerics, from old books. For Chaucer's audience, they would be very accustomed to respectable women who were married many, many times. You know, women would often marry men who were slightly older than themselves. And, you know, women were often long-lived and would go through several husbands. That wasn't strange. You know, one of the women that I write about, she was in marriage negotiations for her third husband when she was pregnant with a baby from her second husband. And no one thought that that was inappropriate in, in any way. But I've also in the book got, I think, some very interesting stories about, for example, a 15th century duchess who married her fourth husband when she was in her 60s and he was a teenager. So, you know, these examples are often troubling and disturbing, but very, very interesting and really show us that the wife of Bath is not a is not a bizarre figure. But you were also asking about what she says about sexual pleasure. And I think that, again, is a very interesting thing to think about across time because people often assume that you know in the olden days people wouldn't have talked about sex in this open way but you have only to open something like Chaucer to see that people were very open in the way that they talk about sex. The wife of Bath as I say is unusual because we don't usually hear the voice of that kind of woman so it is unusual to hear in literature a respectable middle-aged woman talking about sex in that way. But we have examples of, for instance, texts that were being read at court at this time in which there are all kinds of sexual jokes, in which there are riddles about penises, in which there are all kinds of bawdy comments that were being read by the Queen and her circle. So, you know, women in the Middle Ages were not naive. They didn't think it was inappropriate to think and talk about sex. And the wife of Bath brings that to the the foreground. 
I mean, one thing that I was thinking the other day, um, at the moment, Zadie Smith's play, The Wife of Wilsden, is on. And I talk about that in the last chapter of my book. I saw it last year, but I saw it again last week. And I was thinking that people who see that play and don't know Chaucer probably imagine that the fact that the wife of Bath figure talks a lot about her genitals, they probably imagine that that's been added by Zadie Smith. But in fact, that is all a very direct translation of what the wife of Bath says. You know, and the wife of Bath is, if anything, more explicit in the way that she talks about her genitals and sexual pleasure. So, you know, the Middle Ages was not coy about these kinds of things. Do we know how her contemporaries may have reacted to her character more widely? We have very limited evidence from Chaucer's own lifetime. So we do know that in general his texts were being read by a mixed audience. We know that people were interested in in thinking about sex and literature. But the first actual evidence we have of readers comes from around the time of Chaucer's death into the 15th century because that's when the first um, manuscripts survive from. So... In manuscripts from the 15th century, we're seeing an intense interest in in the wife of Bath. So we see scribes writing much more on manuscripts of on, on the parts of the manuscripts that are that are the wife of Bath's prologue and tale, particularly the prologue, than they tend to write on other parts of the Canterbury Tales. So in manuscripts, scribes will often put glosses next to the text where they'll write little comments. And usually those comments are just, here's a reference to a source or little pointing hand saying, this is a good bit, essentially, nota bene. Um, But they write about the wife of Bath in a different way. So several scribes essentially enter into argument with the wife of Bath. So writing things that are telling us not to take her seriously, that she is wrong, piling up lots and lots of biblical quotations that contradict her, that kind of thing. So we see scribes being drawn to her, but also being very worried that people are going to take her seriously. We also see poetic responses. And I think, you know, to go very early, to Chaucer's own response to his own character, he does treat her differently to other characters. She appears in other Canterbury tales. She's also the only Canterbury pilgrim that he puts into a poem, a non-Canterbury tales poem, so a short poem. So we can see that he thinks of her differently. And in the 15th century and the 16th century, we start to see poets writing responses. So Skelton, a late medieval poet, he writes a kind of summary of the Canterbury Tales. He writes four lines about the whole of the Canterbury Tales and then 10 about the wife of Bath. So the wife of Bath draws people in, captures their imagination and attention, even if that attention is critical. People are more interested in her often than they are in, in other pilgrims. So the wife of Bath seems to have really fascinated readers for years. But where exactly has her many travels taken her since the 14th century? Yeah, so right across time and right across the world. So first of all, in terms of time, every single era, we see many, many writers responding directly to the wife of Bath. So in the second half of my book, I trace this across time and look at authors, including you know Shakespeare, Pope, Dryden, Gay, 
Voltaire, James Joyce, filmmakers such as Pasolini, and then contemporary writers in the 21st century, such as Patience Agbagbi, Caroline Bergville, Jean Binterbreeze, Zadie Smith. So right across time. But also we see her traveling across the world, which I also think is very interesting. So that in the 18th century, she gets over to France. I just mentioned Voltaire. She later gets to America. We see a really interesting play in the early 20th century by someone called Percy McKay about the wife of Bath. And then in the, I mean, in the 20th century, we see translations of Canterbury, of the Canterbury Tales all over the world, but specifically interest in the wife of Bath. There was a Brazilian play about her just a few years ago. Um, Pasolini focuses on her in a very specific way in the 1970s. One of the other examples I talk about in the book is a a Polish production of the Canterbury Tales in communist Poland, which was advertised with this extraordinary poster about the wife of Bath. So she's really got everywhere. And I found so many examples that I wasn't expecting. And I do think it's really fascinating to think about why she keeps capturing people's imaginations across time. And I think that she is this extraordinarily vital character So partly this voice really seems to speak to people, but it doesn't always speak to people for the same reasons. And people often get annoyed with her for different reasons. You know, so there are some eras in which they think she's, she talks too much in others that she's too sexual in others that she's too Catholic. There's different things happen in different periods. And we often see across time, this tension between People are obsessed. Her voice keeps resurfacing. But at the same time, people keep trying to slap her down. So we see people censoring her a great deal, you know, taking all the sex out. um, And there isn't much left. Or we see people writing kind of sequels about what happened to her. And it doesn't tend to be good in many of the examples. And although there are ups and downs, you know, there's some very sensitive and interesting transformations of her in, in earlier periods as well. But I'd also say that in particular, in the last 20 years, we have seen a lot more women in particular writing about the wife of Bath. And that has definitely made a change in in the broad trends of how she is seen, I think. Have her prologue and tell been interpreted differently through time? Oh, absolutely. There are various examples of people who are happy to write about the tale, but not the prologue. So Dryden explicitly says that he won't write the, won't, won't write about the prologue because it's too licentious, and so he's but he keeps going back to it again with this obsession. So in his prologue to the fables, he a couple of times says that's the one I wanted to translate, but I know I can't. People would really like it, but I shouldn't. And instead, he translates the the tale, and that's then what Voltaire takes up. He takes up Dryden's translation, so it's the tale rather than the prologue. And, you know, he does very disturbing things with the the gender politics of that tale. But I think think more commonly we see responses to the prologue and they are either direct or they're taking her character and then, as I say, writing a play about her as a person or writing... um, a, a play or a ballad that is a is a sequel, you know, so the, the 17th century ballad, which was burnt and the printers put in prison, that ballad is about her after her death when she gets to Heaven's Gate and tries to get in and has to argue with all the all the patriarchs, for instance. But then there are other examples where we do see both the prologue and the tale being thought about together. And that's what someone such as Smith has done in The Recent Wife of Wilsdon, which covers both the prologue and the tale. Now, this might be a difficult one, but what would you say has been your favourite interpretation of The Wife of Bath? I mean, that is a difficult one because 
there are so many interesting ones. So I think that that my my favourite direct interpretation is probably Zadie Smith's Wife of Wilsdon. I think in terms of more indirect interpretations, Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor, which I argue has drawn an enormous amount from the Wife of Bath, I think is a fascinating, more tangential, but very closely influenced interpretation. But that's two. That might be cheating when you ask me for one. <laughs> it's definitely not cheating. I think you're allowed more than one choice. So it's my final question for you. How do you think we should see the wife of Bath now? I think that that is a question that Chaucer wouldn't want me to answer because I think that the principle of the Canterbury Tales is to empower readers to make their own decisions. So the Canterbury Tales is all about the idea that you cannot ever have an authoritative perspective from any speaker or from any writer and that readers should read lots and lots of different points of views and then make their own decision. Chaucer is really committed to this idea that everyone's perspective is different, but that in order to make educated interpretations, we need to think about a whole range of perspectives. We need to challenge ourselves not to stay in our comfort zones, not just to read the stories that come in our algorithms, but actually to look at the things that are in the newspapers that we don't normally read, listen to people that we know we're going to disagree with, you know, listen to women as well as men, listen to people from different social backgrounds, from more marginal voices as well as authoritative ones. And so what I really want listeners to do is to go and read the prologue and tale, read other Canterbury tales, read my book, read other books, read other interpretations and adaptations and, and think for themselves. That was Professor Marion Turner of the University of Oxford. Her book, The Wife of Bath, A Biography, is out now, published by Princeton. And if you'd like to read a feature that Marion wrote on the subject, you can find that in the February issue of BBC History magazine. If you're interested to find out more about the man behind the Canterbury Tales, be sure to check out In Our Times episode all about Geoffrey Chaucer. That's available now on BBC Sounds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. 